Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 140 of the Brown County Hour. This is Sarah Lytle. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, instead of our regular musical guests, we have an interview with poet Andrew Hubbard. You may have seen his work posted on the Salt Creek Trail. We'll listen to our conversation with him and hear one of his poems. No Brown County Hour is complete without music. And we have two performances, one from John Whitcomb, and the other from Joe Bollinger. We also have interviews with local artist Kurt Eagleman, paranormal researcher Matthew Jackson, and a no-name representative from the Children's Auction. Along the way, we'll round out the show with essays from Sarah Lytle, Jim Eagleman, and Dave Seastrom. Our first segment starts off with our Andrew Hubbard interview. Andrew discusses the origin of his poetry and shares some insight into his process. Local artist Kurt Eagleman discusses his latest work, a mural under the bridge on Salt Creek Trail. And we'll close with the Andrew Hubbard poem, Ghosts. I'm Pam Rader, I'm with the Brown County Hour, and I'm here with Andrew Hubbard tonight, one of our local poets, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now, we have a little history. I took a poetry class of yours at our local library several years ago, and then I was delighted to find that you actually nail some of your poems up to a tree on Salt Creek, and it's an interesting tree that's carved with a hand. I was curious how that came about. Well, the story is uh, my family and I moved here in 2014, And at that time, my first book of poetry had just come out, and I was racking my brains to find any way of publicizing myself and my poetry. And my wife and I, at that time, we had two Siberian Huskies, and they would walk us on that trail uh, very frequently. And I I really liked the idea of that hand-carved bench. And I said, I'm going to put some poems up there. And then I said, well, I may as well have a system to this. So what I do is I put, up, I put up like six or seven poems at the beginning of a month, and then I keep them stocked through that month. Then I skip a month, then I do it again. And I started on August of 2015 and haven't missed in every other month yet. Wow, that's great. Oh, and by the way, when I started doing it, I, would, I, I count my success how many people take poems. And when I started doing it, it was about 12 to 15, and now it's about 35 to 40. So somewhere out there, I have a small following. 
Well, that leads me to how and why did you become a poet? Because that's not necessarily everyone's forte. No, far from it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I say there are no commercially successful poets in America, and I'm one of them. And what happened is uh, when I was in high school, when, you know, dinosaurs roamed the earth, I had a very good English teacher. So it was my favorite course. And we did a lot of poetry in the course. And one, one time in, when I was a junior, I was sitting around and I said to myself, reading some poems and saying, this is really good, was my first thing. And my second is, I could do that. So <laughs> I sat down and wrote a poem. And after I was done with it and reasonably well pleased with it, I said, you know, this is my thing. I'm never going to stop this. I hate to admit it, but it's been more than 50 years, and I never have stopped, and I never will. I expect to be composing a poem on my deathbed. That's wonderful to find a calling so young. Yes. You're really lucky. Well, what brought you to Brown County? You don't hail from here as a native. No, I guess to you folks, I talk funny. Uh, (laughs) And the way it happened uh, was uh, from 1994 to 2004, I lived in Carmel, Indiana. I had taken a job with Bank One, right on Monument Circle. And at that time, we had three little kids. And so in searching for things to do with them, uh, we often came to Brown County State Park. We would stay overnight in Abe Martin Lodge and let the kids run wild. Mm -hmm. And then in 2004, I took a job in Houston, Texas. Uh, And uh, at that time, you know, we were moving along through our life starting to talk about where we might retire. And we had lived a lot of places and been a lot of places, and we had a short list. Uh, and one, one was uh, Fort Collins, Colorado area. Another was Asheville, North Carolina area. And the third was Brown County. As the years rolled on in Houston, eventually she gave me the talk. The essence of the talk was that she had decided Brown County. <laughs> uh, and and uh, she so seldom just puts her foot down like that, that when she does, I know it's very, very important to her. So I said, Brown County it is. Turns out later that the reason was we have we had two grown sons. One was in Broad Ripple, one was in West Lafayette. And she figured she could talk me into Brown County, and then she would be near the babies. <laughs> one of them is six foot five. <laughs> They're still her babies. Yeah. Uh, so uh, in 2014, I quit my job, and this went into... Top Gear, and uh, finally found what I call kind of a a modest dream home. Moved into it in 2014, could not have been happier with the home or the place or the county. Here's an interesting story. Uh, A year or two later, I did my first reading in the local high school, and the English teacher introduced me by saying, he's from the county. Okay, I've never heard that. I've lived in places with city pride, like New York City, places with state pride, mm-hmm. like Texas. I never heard of a place with county pride till I moved here, but it, it's, it's very strong. But everyone's been very nice to us, even though I do talk funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're lucky to have you here. Thank you. And now, is there a way people can get in touch with you if they wanted to learn more about you, or do you kind of keep that private? Um, I, I, I don't have a website, mm-hmm. and I should. I'm kind of technophobic. Uh, I hate the computer, and the computer hates me. Um, but uh, 
Uh, I can be reached. I have a, a, a fairly public uh, email. It's ahubbard1050 at yahoo.com. And uh, the Brown County Art Gallery carries most of my books. Brown County State Park Gift Shop has at least one or two. And uh, I'm always looking for opportunities to read, write, talk to people, mm-hmm. anything like that. Yeah, I saw you were in an issue of The Rider out of Bloomington. It's been a year or so ago in the summer. but um, And your books are on Amazon. You have five of them. Yes. Yeah. What, what it was, I, I, I quit my day job really prematurely. What I said to myself and my family was, I have quit my day job, but I have not quit my job. My job, I've always said what I do is what I do for money, what I am as a poet. And I said, now I'm going to, as Robert Frost said, combine my vocation with my avocation. And I made it my job pretty much to write or try to write every day and to try to put a book out every two years. And I did in 2014, 16, 18, and 20 and 22. What is your process? Can you just sit down and write a poem in an hour? Or does it take you, do you go back to it? Generally speaking, uh, the process is like this. And there's the answer I wish I could give you and the answer I have to give you. The answer I wish I could give you is a little angel flutters down and lands on my shoulder and whispers in my ear and out pops a poem. It's not like that at all. Uh, What it is is... uh, the sergeant comes up to me and says, Hubbard, you haven't written a poem in a week. Sit your butt down in this chair, duct tape yourself to it, and you will not get up until you've written a poem. Do you hear me? And Hubbard says, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> and I, I sit down, pick up a pad of paper and a pen, hope for the best. Uh, and sometimes a poem comes out and sometimes it doesn't. And then usually I draft a poem in two to three hours in one sitting. Uh, and then I will spend usually a couple of days going over it 30 or 40 or 50 times. Uh, and then when it's done, or the best I can do, then I type it up, file it, record it, save it, and move on to the next poem. And then after a couple of years, I'll go back, look at the last couple of years' poems, try to pull out in sequence 50 or 60 or 70 that I think are the best, uh, and then the hard part start, which starts, which is finding a publisher. As far as I'm concerned, it's ten times easier to write a poem than find someone who will publish a poem. And there's a good reason for this. Uh, in the world of publishing, uh, they say, and it's pretty much true, that publishers won't look at an author without an agent. And an agent won't work with poets because poets never make a dime. So it's kind of, it's kind of a trap. But mm-hmm. I have been able by just infinite perseverance to find publishers who would work with me even though they were pretty sure I was not going to make them rich. And they were right. Well, it's kind of good to know discipline is involved. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A lot of it. Well, thank you so much for coming in. And now I can't wait to hear some of your poems. Hi, this is Lucy Schultz. I'm here talking with um, Kurt Eagleman. He is currently doing the Salt Creek Trail Mural. Your mural is got a theme. Yes, yeah, so right now I'm working on a mural down at the Salt Creek Trail, just at the base of CVS. Where it's underneath 46, like an overpass. And it's kind of an interesting 
area because there's two archways and some columns and sort of like a culvert that wraps around the highway. So it's a little bit of a different, you know, it's not just like a blank wall. No, so it's beautiful down there. It's yeah. And along the creek, it's a beautiful trail. So I wanted to kind of play on the themes of nature and the trail that you discover down there. So in more or less, I was inspired by nature. So it's as you approach the trailhead, it's a, a sunrise that reaches across the archway. I'm going to have a blue heron centered by a hazy midday sun and then spring peepers underneath it and cattails and different birds flying around and then some fields with birds and insects floating around and then on the opposite side on the other column it'll be a barred owl or a great horned owl and then a field mouse or like a rabbit so basically on each little intersection of the mural there's a predator and prey theme and plays to the ecosystem and it's kind of like the circle of life absolutely and, yeah and yeah. then on the, the sunrise on one side becomes a sunset on the other side Ugh, and then the so the cool. owl is a nighttime scene whereas the heron is a daytime scene Ugh. so you get a full day in brown county as oh you, that's so cool yeah that's so cool and um, we were talking today about how, like, you know, people can come and walk the trail and, you know, it does spark a conversation about predator and prey and mm -hmm. the circle of life. That's why I, I kind of wanted, like, obviously art is supposed to evoke an emotion. So I hope it's unexpected and, and something cheerful and colorful. And then it's also a conversation starter. So yeah. it's teaching kids about nature and it, it's it's maybe pointing out something that they want it in, in an uninspected way absolutely so, absolutely yeah. and you told me that you're gonna put on the inside nashville indiana yeah so part of the grant that i got for this mural was it was a placemaking grant through the state and one of the criteria was to have it indicate the location so this being kind of a trail that mobilizes the community from from like the YMCA and um, more of the industrial part to the town part. Um, I thought it was a good place to be a locator. So it's going to say Nashville, Indiana on the first arch and then another sort of hidden message on the second arch. And you haven't come up with that yet? It'll be something about nature, beauty, something in the surroundings, something like awesome. that. Yeah. I know that um, I, when I was there, I felt this overwhelming um, feeling of your father in it, working at the park, and you were telling me about all the hidden things that you learned growing up, and all the just well daytime I, chats were about the blue I, heron and yeah, learning I, about all I that. I think his teaching subliminally, you know, seeped into my brain somehow. I right, don't know how right. that happened, but um, definitely have learned. Obviously, lots of nature um, learnings from him, and that has definitely helped inspire my artwork as well. Absolutely, so, yeah, great. And tell tell me about the Heritage Mall mural. I actually went to the dedication with Rick Fettig, and we uh, ran into your dad and your mom and the whole town. Yeah. It was so great. <laughs> Tell me about that. It was yeah. wonderful. And then uh, State Senator Eric Cook was there also with the dedication. Yes, yes. We had a really nice turnout. It was, it was put on by the Nashville Arts and Entertainment Commission. 
they provided some catering from Bonafide Bites, which was really nice. And we had a great turnout from local support. And yeah, that the Heritage Mall mural was um, another grant that we received from the Nashville Arts and Entertainment Commission and the Indiana Destination Development Corporation. Which are the same people that are doing the yes. same. Okay, yes. same grant. The, the mural that I'm working on now, just to clarify, I got a grant from the Nashville Arts and Entertainment Commission and okay. then the Brown County Community Foundation, which matched a state grant from the Indiana Destination Development Corporation. So there's, okay. it was a state effort and a community effort for this current mural. And then they also helped out with the first mural. Yeah. No, it really brought the community together. Everybody was there. Everybody was so happy. It was, it yes. was wonderful and it's beautiful. Thank and I you. can't wait to see the finished product with the uh, Salt Creek Trail mural also. So could you give the audience some contact information? Yeah, so they can check out more of my artwork on my Instagram, which is at Kurt Eagleman, or my website, which is KurtEagleman.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. And now, Pam, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but you had asked if I would read the, the latest poem that I published on the trail. It's called The Family Ghost. And most of my poems have some percentage of factuality in them. And it, it ranges really anywhere zero to 100. And this is maybe 15, okay? When we first moved into the house, a few things happened that didn't seem to have an explanation, but nothing a tenth as dramatic as what's in the poem. But I had a lot of fun writing the poem, and I chose to put this one on Salt Creek Trail as kind of a, a pre-Halloween warm-up. It's called The Family Ghost. There is no fear. He seems a little playful, mischievous, imaginative. Once, every pair of tweezers in the house was hanging from the bottom of the lampshade beside my wife's bed. She yipped, and a board in the middle of the floor that never creaked, creaked over and over like laughter. Only once did he do something vicious. One morning, my marble collection was scattered all over the stairs. I kicked them down the stairs and said sharply, Don't you ever do that again! When I put them back in their special bag, there was a diamond ring in the bag, like an apology. I said to my wife, Let's get a garden gnome and give this jerk some competition. We did so. On the second day, the gnome was upside down in the dirt, legs in the air. I said, okay, I guess we know how he feels about gnomes. One day in the second year, there was a spasm. Floors heaved, mirrors stopped reflecting, and all the knives in the kitchen rack fell to the floor and broke in half. Did we do something? Did he do something? Or was it a thing completely beyond our understanding? Frankly, we have no idea, but there has been nothing since. And deep in my heart, I miss the guy, whatever he was. Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County. 
91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from Our Brown County, a magazine for locals and visitors featuring art, entertainment, and county characters since 1995. Printed six times a year and available online. More at OurBrownCounty.com. Our interview with paranormal researcher Matthew Jackson begins segment two. Sarah Lytle has a few words to say about bird preservation with her essay, Lights Out. A no-name representative from the children's auction shares information about this charitable event. And we'll close with John Whitcomb's tune, Zombie Girl. This is Chuck Wills with the Brown County Hour, and we are with paranormal researcher and investigator Matthew Jackson. Welcome, Matthew. Hey, thank you for having me on again. Yeah, uh, this is probably, what, the fourth or fifth time we've we've had you on? I think so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and we've talked about all sorts of things in the past, but uh, you've got a really interesting project now that has recently gone up on your website that's all about the Crump Theater. Absolutely. It's a, it's a project I've been working on for over a year. And as a matter of fact, probably over 10 years ago, I, I tried to solicit to the city of Columbus that allowing paranormal investigations in the Crump Theater is a viable stream of revenue to help preserve historical structures. So uh, for the past year, working with the current project manager at the Crump, uh, we finally have got it up off the ground and, and moving. Really? So, so they're actually looking at that as a revenue stream to do paranormal tours? Absolutely. And, and all money proceeds are going to go to the Crump. And there, I mean, from coast to coast, there are so many buildings that have been saved solely by allowing weirdos like me who are interested in high strangeness to allow to come in. And, and guess what? It doesn't even run up your light bill because they want the lights off and right. allow them to pay to come into these buildings and explore. Wow, well, that's that's really pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I'm I'm really uh, uh, looking forward to see what the community is able to contribute to the restoration of the building. Excellent. So, uh, can you guess when we would uh, be able to go over there and take a paranormal tour? Well, we just had our first event this past weekend, which was October 14th, and we called it Tales from the Crump. And nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So it's kind of the kickoff during the, uh, you know, the Halloween season. Right. But g moving forward, the Crump is going to offer tours just as like dates and so forth open up because, uh, you know, there are a lot of people trying to get in there. They're excited. Everybody has all these fundraising ideas. So as the opportunities trickle through, we'll be posting about them. Very exciting. Yes. Will that be on your website? It will be on my website and also all over the Crump social media. They, they're posting everything. So Okay, very yeah. good. So we'll check out Crump social media and also your website, which is paraholics.com. Absolutely. And Fantastic. check out the post, The Ghost of the Crump Theater, because there's all kinds of interesting history there, lots of research. And I think people that might be fascinated with the Crump and its weird history will get a big kick out of it. 
Okay, so it sounds like you have done a lot of historical research yourself. Uh, yeah, and people that help me and people that I work with and uh, have, have definitely helped contribute to, uh, you know, bringing the project together. So, I, okay. um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty monstrous post. It's pretty, pretty hefty. There's a lot of stuff on there. Okay. All right. So we'll check that out on your website. So you have done some investigations there. Mm-hmm. And give us one of the most dramatic takeaways that you've had or dramatic experiences that you've had there. Well, I tell you that probably the one that sent me down the deepest rabbit hole for as far as like the blog post that I have now is once I discovered that the uh, Crump Theater was actually built on the backside of an existing building that was there called uh, Keith's Arcade, which that section of the Crump, which is the front half, is over 150 years old. And it was built by this man called his name was Colonel Keith. And uh, when I first went and investigated the crump and I recorded a electronic voice or an EVP uh, that said, I hate Colonel Keith. Uh, that kind of clued me in, like, I need to check out who this man is. And I started doing deep dives at that point and just found out all kinds of fascinating and craziness concerning like Keith's Arcade and, and the history of that section of the building. So as far as my personal research goes, I've not even tapped into the opera house yet. I've been so focused on just Keith's Arcade. That's where I'm at right now with my research, especially once I found out that there used to be a the Indus Infirmary in this building. And the Indus Infirmary claimed to uh, have been able to cure every chronic illness of like the mind, the eye, the ear, the knee, the scrotum, you name it. <laughs> no joke. And okay. they especially cured cancer. Oh, well, good for them. Yes. So <laughs> so we're, we're talking about late Victorian era times, yeah. though. You yeah. know, when when we hear the word arcade, maybe we're thinking asteroids and Pac-Man, but this it, is going it back. It wasn't that cool. Yeah, this is going back late 1800s where you could go to the arcade and get cancer cured. Yeah, exactly. And they Amazing. had, uh, there were apartments in this building. I, I think they called buildings arcades that had some sort of like arch quality to them. I think that's why it was called an arcade at that point. Okay. Yeah. So you just think about the different, you know, energies and people and, yeah. and, and that pass through those halls. I've just found some just fascinating things about that era. Well, it, it sounds like you have really just scratched the surface Yes. On what you can do there. I feel like I still have a lot of work to do there. Okay. Well, with all the rehab going on in the building, uh, plus all the paranormal tours, it sounds like a really exciting time to be around the theater. Yeah, absolutely. And just in the past year that I've been associated and when, uh, working actively with the Crump to see the differences they've already made, uh, because the current project manager, I think she got the key to the place in like 2018, 2019, and the place was literally like falling in. Mm-hmm. And now that it's able to uh, be reopened, and I think right now the capacity is a little over 300 people that they can they can legally have in the structure. Uh, it's just going to keep growing and getting yeah. bigger and better. And they have so many fun things planned for the community. So that's what's most important. Well, that that sounds fantastic. I'm glad to hear that for the theater. Glad to hear that you're going to have some paranormal tours going on there. And again, we'll just direct everybody to the Crump social media pages, as well as your website, paraholics.com. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Greetings. This is Sarah Lytle with Lights Out for Safety. October is coming to an end, and the migration of tourists viewing autumn leaves is falling off. But another migration is still a flutter. 
Every spring and fall, billions of birds migrate through the United States, mostly in the dark of night, aided by natural light of stars and the moon. One of their biggest threats is light pollution. A growing international effort called Lights Out includes over 30 cities in North America who propose and implement one solution that's as simple as flipping a switch, turning off lights. This is a doable act that dramatically reduces the hazards to birds from disorientation and fatal crashes into buildings from their attraction to our artificial lights at night. Thrown off course by even a few degrees can result in fatigue, dehydration, and loss of crucial energy reserves. So what can you do to help birds safely proceed with their nighttime migratory journeys is to adopt dark skies friendly lighting practices. You can turn off all non-essential lights between the hours of 11 p.m. to 6 a.m., basically three hours after our local sunset. These are the peak hours of nighttime migration. And the peak season for Indiana is October and November, and then in April and May. For security, landscape, and essential lighting, aim your lights down or use shields to direct that light downward, not into the trees and the sky. Use motion detectors and sensors so the lights on are only on when you need them. Or close blinds at night to reduce the amount of light escaping from your windows and the reflection of the moon and stars through the glass. Encourage your employer and businesses around you to follow suit. Lights Out saves birds, energy, and money. The Environmental Protection Agency highlights energy as the largest operating expense for commercial buildings. Energy represents about 19% of the total expenditures for the typical office building. And for every 1,000 kilowatt hours that you save by turning things off, you save $100 on your utility bill, assuming an average electricity cost of 10 cents per kilowatt hour. Lights Out is a win-win for birds and cities and the people who love both. By working together toward a dark sky every spring and fall, we can help birds safely stay on course. Each light matters. Bird-friendly communities and existing Lights Out programs can be found at audubonsociety.org. I discovered that our neighboring state of Ohio lists six cities, Akron, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Dayton, and Toronto. For Indiana, it's Indianapolis. Scrolling through the list, I got excited when I saw Nashville and sighed as I read Tennessee. Maybe that can change for 2024 during the critical spring migration months of April and May. Lights Out Indy is an initiative of the Amos Butler Audubon Society of Central Indiana. You can go on their site and find suggestions for homeowners and residents, business owners and tenants, building owners and managers. They also have links for bird-friendly glass options and building designs. To find out when birds are migrating through your area, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology Department has developed BirdCast, a tool that uses radar ornithology to predict, monitor, and map bird migration. These maps show where migration is occurring in real time. You can learn how to use the BirdCast dashboard by checking out all birds 
birdcast.org or birdcast.info. As for Nashville, Indiana, I'd like to propose two sites where a simple shield to direct that light downward would be really welcome. One is the Bean Blossom Overlook. The floodlight there does just that, floods the night sky, so that even the people who go to watch meteor showers, satellites, and constellations are dismayed, let alone the birds on their nocturnal travels and hunts. The other location is the floodlight in the parking lot of the Playhouse and PNC Bank. Take a stroll down Jefferson, where a quaint yet effective lighting exists, and then go to the parking lot. Lighting in an art community can certainly offer a bit more ambiance and still provide a feeling of safety. It's not too late to take time this November to turn off your lights, step outside, enjoy the night sky, and give a thought about our winged friends. When you're done, go inside, turn on a reading light, pick up a banned book. All it takes is an open mind, a bit of awareness, to expand your horizons and save a bird. Hi, I'm Pam Rader. I'm here with one of Santa's elves who's representing the No Name Committee to tell us about the children's auction. Howdy. How's it going? So the children's auction this year is on the first Friday of December, like it always is, which happens to be December 1st. It's going to be at 6 p.m. at the BCI, the Brown County Inn. And we are currently looking for donations. And we're going to have a big auction and as every year, you know, as it is every year since for the last 46 years. All the money is going to go to buying clothes for kids right here in Brown County. Such a good project. Where can people drop off their donations? If they have actual physical donations, they can drop it off at Out of the Ordinary, or you can get in contact with us on the on our Facebook page. Or there's flyers all over town. Uh, you can you can get a contact to us with us there, and we can pick it up. That'd be great. So they take most stuff, but no clothes. Yeah, well, clothes we so. Clothes don't really sell well at auction. Like it's real hard to sell clothes because mm-hmm. they got to be the right size and they got to be in great shape and all that. So the clothes don't really do well, which is ironic because we actually, you know, the, all of our money goes to buying new clothes. So the way it works is we have a partnership with Coles. We reach out to the schools. The schools give us children's names. We usually provide K through 12, depending on how much money we make. And then we can also sometimes provide clothes for kids in preschool as well. They'll get a voucher for clothing at Kohl's. Thank you, by the way, Kohl's and Columbus. Appreciate it. And then they can use that money to buy what they need for so that everyone can have a new set of clothes for the holidays is kind of the idea that was started by the No Name Committee back in the day. And, you know, we're still continuing that tradition. And what's your Facebook page? It is facebook.com slash BC Children's Auction. So find us out there on Facebook. We also, we have an online auction that kicks off usually about two weeks before the actual auction starts. So two weeks before December 1st night. We do put some things up online like gift cards, jewelry, crazy items. Like this year we have Minnie Pearl's hat that she wore on stage at the Opry. So we get all sorts of crazy stuff in, you know, that we, we get every year. We get tons of local artists and we usually try to raise around $30,000. Last year, we raised about $34,000, and we serviced about 350 kids. Most of the kids, if they were of school age, got a $100 voucher, and I think we did $50 vouchers for pre-K kids. 
the lo- auction's always live. Then we have the online stuff as well. So either way you can get out. And if you just want to give a monetary do- donation as well, most of the banks in town we have an account with. So ask for Brown County Children's Fund Incorporated and you can just give us money that way. It's a fun evening. It's too. great. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Come on out and support the kids. I mean, this has been going, we want to hit 50 years and we're getting there. (laughs) So, you know, 77 was the first year and we've been doing it ever since. And it's a great time come rain or snow or shine. We've done it in all weathers, but yeah, we're going to be out at the Brown County end this year and six o'clock is when the auction starts. Uh, We're going to have a couple of special items this year. One item we're going to have is you can buy a table for the auction. We're going to have a specialty VIP table set up. We've never done that before, but we're going to sell that on the online auction that you can show up on the night of and get the best seats in the house. We're doing an eclipse viewing area. So you can, you know, we have a parking lot designated in town here and, you know, we'll set you up so you can come and see the eclipse on the 8th. Like I said, we always get tons of local artists. Also, I mean, you name it. Two years ago, we had a giant fiberglass horse. I mean, you never know what you're going to find at the children's auction, but it's a great way to do all your Christmas shopping. And it's a lot of fun. So go to the Facebook page for more info. Online auction is galabid.com slash BCCA 2023. And or just find one of our flyers around Nashville. They're all over the place. Well, thanks for doing this and tell the other no-name people thanks. All right. Thanks a lot. This is Chris Curtin with a poem called Fish. Do fish get thirsty, do you think, they're ever dry and need a drink? Are fish a lot like you and me and take a drink occasionally? Or do they swim all day and night, guzzling every drop in sight? Here's a new girl in town, she's causing quite a fuss. It's easy to see she ain't one of us. Time since a chick made me smile. She's a bit slimy, but I'm digging her style. Crazy, or maybe I'm a fool. But I love my little freak, she's my number one cool. Yeah, she's a zombie girl. Yeah, a zombie girl. Oh, she's a zombie girl. And she's rocking my world. She milked my soul with her vacuous stare. She gave me her hand and I could.
We pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. Our final segment gets underway with an essay by Jim Eagleman, Jays and Crows. Dave Seastrom has a few thoughts about critters that go thump in the night. And we'll close the show with Joe Bullinger's tune, Werewolf. They fly in loud, obnoxious, and typical groups of two to four, frightening all the other birds at the feeder, you are in for a show of dominance and aggression, not just with other birds, but among themselves. Thief, thief is their call. It's the blue jay, and like other misaligned wildlife with bad reputations, the jay has a good side, several in fact. It's fall, and if you've noticed, the nut crop on oaks, walnuts, hickories, and beech trees is ripening, collectively called the mast, This annual production of nuts, along with seeds and fruits, is a giant payoff for all the wildlife that exploit them. This fall production will feed an assortment of forest wildlife through winter, including deer, turkey, and rodents, crows, and songbirds. The acorn crop alone is responsible for providing a food source for deer, making up as much as 75% of their winter diet. You may have noticed every once in a while... White oaks particularly produce an oversized crop of acorns. And it's usually not just one oak here and there, but often in the same year, nearly all the oaks in an entire region produce an extraordinary number of acorns. This is called masting and was first thought to be an adaptation against acorn predation. Acorns are such a viable and reliable source of winter food for many types of animals If oak trees predictably produced a moderate number of acorns each year, the squirrels, deer, mice, jays, ducks, towhees, and all the other creatures would surely increase their populations. This extra animal load would surely outstrip the food supply, and oak production would plummet. But if oaks unpredictably produce many more acorns than the acorn feeders can consume, some acorns would escape the predatory scramble for food, and they would germinate. When jays aren't at your feeder, you may have seen them fly by with an acorn in their jowls. This appears almost comical. We know they can carry up to six acorns in their mouth, three on either side, 
And over eons, jays have become so dependent on acorns that they have adapted both physically and behaviorally to acorn shapes. The small hook on the pointed end of a jay's beak, for example, is designed to rip open an acorn's husk. The jay's expanded esophagus, this is called a gular pouch, enables them to fly and carry them off efficiently. And just because a jay can carry more than one acorn at a time doesn't mean they take them to the same place. When some birds cache groups of seeds for use during drought or cold, jays bury them singly, just beneath the ground surface. These are at sites scattered throughout the winter territory, often over a mile from the tree. This makes jays the undisputed champions among acorn dispersers, competing with squirrels. It's assumed that each jay will remember all the places it buried an acorn, and then they know exactly, or maybe not, where to retrieve it. But apparently this is more of a mental challenge than most jays are up to. And you can't blame them. A single jay can gather and bury up to 4,500 acorns each fall. And from research, it typically remembers where only a quarter of them are buried before springtime. But apparently this is more of a mental challenge than most jays are up to. You can't blame them. A single jay can bury and gather up to 4,500 acorns each fall. And from research, it typically remembers where only a quarter of them are buried before springtime. If a cooper's hawk feeds on a jay in December, that jay retrieves none of its acorns. The end result is that each jay plants somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,600 oak trees every year during its 7 to 17-year lifespan. It's no wonder that jays have enabled oaks to move about the earth faster than any other tree species. Jays can help in other ways. When oak disease hits an area, sudden oak death and oak wilt are examples, there are survivors that may show a slight resistance. These hardy trees produce the most and best acorns, and it's the jay that preferentially selects and disperses the acorns with resistant genes. Future generations of oaks are likely to survive infections as seeds are spread throughout the countryside by jays. This is natural selection at its best, but it's only working when a partnership between oaks and jays continues to thrive. Here's another example of an often overlooked and seemingly insignificant relationship in nature. Birds and trees, food and consumers of foods, seed dispersals and propagation, all amazing and dynamic aspects, all taking place all year long over our whole area often on our own properties, right here in Brown County. A member of the Crow family, jays are studied for their intelligence and cunning talents. How well adapted to our changing environment they appear has given the jay another interesting fact. They aren't blue. The color blue is rare in nature. Blue pigments in the jay's feathers, melanin, are brown, but we perceive them as blue due to a phenomenon known as light scattering it's similar to the effects of a prism. The wings contain tiny pockets made of air and keratin. It's a substance similar to their hair and fingernails. When light hits these pockets, all of the colors of the wavelength except blue are absorbed. The blue wavelength is refracted, which is what allows us to see the feathers as blue. They're known as bully birds. Jays can be somewhat tolerated at your winter feeder. If you give them a space and a feeder of their own, small feeders, like chickadees, 
nuthatches, woodpeckers, that prevent larger birds from feeding can be installed, but the jay's presence, the feeding and the transport of oak acorns, and its cunning talents should remind us to welcome this visitor. Look for jays this winter. Jim Eagleman for Nature Ramblings in the Brown County Hour. Brown County is famous for its natural beauty. And when I say that, most folks think of our colorful forested hills and valleys during the fall, and rightfully so. What is often not considered are the multitudes of critters that we share the forest with. From pygmy shrews to mountain lions, Brown County is home to hundreds of species. Measuring in at less than two inches, the pygmy shrew is the smallest mammal in North America, and perhaps the least threatening of all of the critters in our forest. These tiny mammals spend their time rummaging through the leaf duff at the base of fallen trees, feeding on insects. Mountain lions have been sighted here several times, and while they're considerably more dangerous than the shrew, the number of reported injuries remains the same at zero. Brown County is home to two species of venomous snakes, the copperhead and the timber rattler. Timber rattlers are the much bigger of the two, and being Less aggressive, they let you know their presence well in advance by shaking their tail at you. Copperheads are more worrisome because their camouflage hides them very well. They also hold their ground. The only incidents of snake bites that I'm aware of have come from stepping on a well-disguised copperhead, and fortunately, only minor injuries occurred. As peaceful and bucolic as the white-tailed deer are, they can be quite aggressive during the fall rut season, and there are several reports of hikers and hunters being injured by these seemingly docile animals. Their antlers aren't the only thing to look out for. The worst injuries happen when deer rise up on their hind feet and use their front hooves in defense by pawing at the intruder. Raccoons can be the size of a small dog, and they're well-known predators of chickens and other small animals. We also have weasels and minks who love to dine on our feathered and furry friends. In order to successfully raise poultry or rabbits, you have to have a predator-proof coop to keep them out. Bobcats are reclusive, and unless you're a small rodent, they're not likely to bother you. However, their canine counterpart, the coyote, is another matter. These critters travel in packs that are mixed with coy and stray domestic dogs. Known for their cooperative hunting skills, in large numbers they can be quite intimidating. I've seen a couple of clear-cut areas in the forest where we found very large numbers of coyote tracks, enough that you wouldn't want to run into them in the middle of the night. Sadly, it's not uncommon for smaller domestic dogs or cats to fall prey to these aggressive hunters. Recently, there have been a few unsubstantiated sightings of black bears in the county. We certainly have the habitat to support them, and before the settlers wiped them out, they were here in great numbers. A few weeks ago, someone on Facebook reported seeing a black bear on Possum Trot Road, where my wife Becky and I live. Several people asked if we've seen this bear, and I'm sad to say that we haven't. Another critter that's due for a comeback is the woodland bison that inhabited the area for thousands of years. These smaller first cousins of the American bison are extinct in Indiana. 
but they are surviving in herds in Canada, and I think it's high time to work a deal out with the Canadians and bring the woodland bison home where it belongs. Speaking of critters who belong here, elk should be on that list as well. Reintroduced elk are thriving in Kentucky, and we could do the same. While I'm at it, before the French traders went into the fur trade business with the Native Americans, I would guess that every ravine and valley in Brown County had beavers in large numbers. They created an aquatic environment that supported fish and amphibians and helped to maintain water retention in the forest. If you think these ideas are far-fetched, reintroduction has returned the wild turkeys and the American bald eagles to our area and the white-tailed deer. And thanks to the success of these projects, they're a common sight in our neck of the woods. Last but not least are the only marsupials in North America, the possum. These creatures of the night are mostly harmless, but that doesn't mean they can't give you a start if you surprise one. Several years ago, we fed a few feral cats on a shelf that I built next to the kitchen door. This gave them a safe place to eat, and it kept the dogs out of their feet. Early one morning, I stepped outside, and there, inches from my face, was a hissing possum. Sure that this critter was baring its teeth at me, was going to jump off on my head, I danced into the yard in full panic. So, there you have it. The forest is full of critters, and more than a few of them go thump in the night. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. Come knock 
your front door with my teeth strapped on. And every job we never got All the speed, all the party All our dreams that turned to right For what is real and for what is not you But I'll count your blessing Before they're gone I might just show up in your bedroom With my knife strapped Thanks for tuning in to episode 140 of the Brown County Hour. This show was recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. and anytime online. Be sure to look for us on your favorite streaming services. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe, now more than ever, the world is for everyone. This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Lucy Schultz, Sarah Lytle, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrup. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh